Hi, I'm Rosie Acosta. I'm a meditation teacher, speaker, and author of You Are Radically Loved, a healing journey to self-love. Look, I grew up in East Los Angeles during the 92 LA riots, and it set me on a troubled path. I didn't grow up with mentors in my life, so I turned to reading as many books as I possibly could to learn about the purpose of life. In my journey, I found that having these conversations gave me life, and I decided I wanted to create a place where I could share these conversations with my community. So come have a sit with me as we learn about, well, everything. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to the Radically Loved podcast. This is Tessa. I have the pleasure of chatting today with Jesse Neeland. Jesse is an author of Body Neutral, which is coming out June 6th. Although by the time this podcast airs, this book will be out and you will be able to get it into your good hands. Subtitle of the book, which I love to read subtitles. I think they're important. So Body Neutral, A Revolutionary Guide to Overcoming Body Image Issues. Jesse is also a body image coach, a multiple guest speaker of TEDx, author of the podcast, This Is Not About Your Body. You can find Jesse on Instagram at Jesse Neeland. And Neeland is K-N-E-E, like your knee joint, L-A-N-D. And I'll make sure that gets into the show notes so people can easily follow along with you, Jesse. How are you doing today? Welcome to the show. Thank you so much for being with us. Thank you. I got excited when I saw you hold up my book because it came out last week. So it's like still very new. I'm good. I'm happy to be here. Yeah. Well, congrats on birthing this baby out into the world. I'm sure it was a labor of love and I'm sure it was, you know, before we started to record, I'll just full disclosure right off the bat. This is such a relevant conversation. It's such a relevant topic. It hits very close to home for me personally. And so Jesse was asking me how I was doing and I was like, I'm okay. (laughs) I was feeling rather emotional because as I've been preparing for this interview and reading about this stuff, I was it has me reflecting a lot on childhood and thinking back to body image issues that I've struggled with for what amounts to the whole of my life that I can remember consciously and thinking a lot about where that stems from culturally, where it stems from within the family nucleus and where at, for me, at, as a 40-year-old female identified person, what do I do with that now? What do I do with yeah. that what feels like a really outdated and honestly unhelpful narrative about what body image for me is or should be. Mm-hmm. So Jesse actually was just listening to an older podcast. I think this was from season one. It was about aging and body positivity. And that one jumped off the page at me. I was like, oh, I have to listen to this. You know, you talk about objectification and visibility as women. I was hoping we could start here just in terms of having you expound upon that What do we mean when we say, well, I'll let you take that topic and run with it. Okay. Yeah, that's a huge thing. So I am 36 and I definitely have noticed over the last, I mean, whatever, however long, like a decline in attention and visibility. But for me, it's very liberating because I, you know, I've done this work and from a neutrality perspective, it's like super joyful for me to feel like I'm not being as objectified as much as I used to be. Mm. But it's also one of those things where a lot of people who got their self-worth from being objectified are going to feel a massive loss 
And it will be a huge self-esteem hit, a huge feeling of like, I'm not worthy as much, you know, like I'm of less value to this world. Because when you are associating your self-worth with the way that you look and other people's sort of approval or desire or whatever it is, having that drop away as you get older can be devastating. And obviously we live in a culture that is obsessed with youth. And, you know, as you age, you're supposed to do everything you can possibly do to avoid looking your age and compliments in in terms of beauty, especially for women and femmes is all about like, you know, you haven't aged a bit and you look so like young and it's celebrity culture where you never see a wrinkle, even though they're, you know, in their fifties. And it is very much an issue for a lot of people. But on the flip side of that is also the fact that some people never had that growing up, you know, Mm -hmm. maybe they were maybe they got attention, maybe negative attention for how they look. So they weren't like linking their worth and their identity with their hotness as it were. And so aging has a totally different experience for them. So it's different for everyone, but it is a very dominant, I would say narrative for women who at least at some point aligned their identity and sense of value in the world with the way they looked as they age for that to be very difficult. Yeah. I want to pull on this thread just a little bit longer because in a related speech, this was from a TED talk that I was listening to. You were thinking back, I think, to maybe your teenage years and you were talking about how men would refer to you as jailbait. And Mm -hmm. it was like as if you should have taken that as a compliment. The thing that struck me about what you were saying in this context was... Then you went on to talk about how that makes us feel a little bit like, okay, I don't know if I can trust this. This doesn't feel safe. This doesn't feel good, you know, but it's like I'm supposed to find that as a compliment. So I'm trying to figure out how to make myself fit into this idea of being jailbait as a good thing. And you went on to say, this is the part that really struck me. You went on to say that it's not always this sense of shrinking ourselves, making ourselves feel kind of like, oh, I have to be invisible so I don't get that kind of attention. It's not always about trauma and violence, but we can lose trust in our environment in these kind of small, more insidious ways of somebody just putting a label on us like that and having it supposed to be a compliment. And you're speaking to that already when you're talking about that we earn our sense of love or worthiness by receiving compliments, by our external validation of being here and and being valued because we have a pretty face or, you know, we have that bod that everybody wants. I was wondering if you wanted to say anything else about that idea. Yeah. I think what I want to say is that we humans are a community-based animal, right? Like we are tribal. We rely on interdependence to regulate our nervous systems. We rely on our communities to reflect who we are so that we know who we are. And like, there is so much about that being bounced off of people that informs you on a really, really deep scale, especially when you're little, little. Mm -hmm. So the stuff that you come up against as you're growing up, however people are valuing you and for what they're valuing you, that stuff sinks in on a really deep level. So as you grow, a lot of people are going to end up feeling like the only thing they have of value is it like if they had compliments, let's say they fit the conventional beauty and body ideals to some degree, and they got a lot of compliments on it. They're going to feel like my only access to the attention, 
respect, admiration, love, and all those things in the world comes from my ability to stay fitting that norm. And you would sort of think like it's a little counterintuitive because you'd be like, oh, compliments on how you look, how nice. They must make you feel great about how you look. But there's actually the totally dark other side of the sword here where then you think to yourself, okay, well, I clearly have nothing else to offer because nobody goes around complimenting my sense of humor or my intelligence or my drive or my passion or my heart. Like you're just getting a lot of feedback for how you look. Okay, so now it it starts to feel scary. You're like, okay, I cannot lose this. In fact, I have to work even harder to make it even better because clearly this is what people value me for. And when it's that deep in your identity and your sense of your own value, the thought of like just accepting your body as you age or gain weight or go through changes or, you know, looking however you look naturally, it goes beyond people think it's sort of vain sometimes, but it's actually like terror. You know, there is this feeling of if I let this go, this idea of constantly pursuing attractiveness, constantly trying to meet these ideals or maintain these ideals, there is a feeling of I'd be kicked out of my community. You know, like I'd be abandoned. I would end up alone. I would die. So there's something super primal about that. And that's why this stuff goes so deep. And on the flip side of that, if you didn't get any attention or you got a lot of negative attention for how you looked, you're also learning, I am not of value to this community unless I change myself, which means I should feel bad. You know, so it's like whether you got positive attention or negative attention for how you look, the idea that how you look is so freaking important, like such a big piece of who you are and should be a big piece of who you are and your value in the world is super damaging. Yeah. Well, and that's why this this body of work, body neutral is so important. And, you know, I wouldn't go so far as to, to tell you why you wrote the book, but why did you write the book? <laughs> <laughs> oh, gosh. Well, I mean, I had been doing this work with clients for years at the point that I was kind of trying to develop a system that could apply to anybody because my client work is either one-on-one or in small groups, you know, three to five people. So I do small group coaching, but I had never found a way of scaling it to a big group, certainly never found a way of scaling it to the world. And I was working on that because I was constantly, you know, people would be like, I don't have the money to do coaching. What do I do? And I'm like, I don't know. I can't tell you unless I'm, you know, sitting in front of you and listening to your story because it's always so personal. So I started trying to come up with that system, something where I could break down the work that I do with clients to achieve body neutrality in a way that would apply to anybody. And as I was doing that work, I got approached to do the book. And so that that work continued really intensely as I wrote the book, because it was all about that. How do I translate this really intuitive personal work into something for the masses? So ultimately, it was so that everybody could access it. Because right now, the cultural conversation around body image is kind of like everybody understands body image issues. We kind of know we have like an epidemic of body shame and anxiety and obsession. And then we've got body positivity, which is the idea that you should just feel good anyway. (laughs) And that doesn't really work. It doesn't have a system. There's no way to get there unless you just happen to get there. So I wanted to have something that felt a little bit more systemized. Like here are the steps to take. This is literally what it looks like to move from one to the other. And also to take the pressure off to love how you look, because for a lot of people in our society, that's just never going to happen. If you've hated your body for decades, the thought of loving it, suddenly just accepting it and feeling good when you look in the mirror, it can feel like science fiction. Mm -hmm. Who's going to do the work to do something that they don't believe is possible, you know? So the thought of body neutrality is it's this more approachable, more achievable end goal to doing body image healing work. 
because mm-hmm. you can get to a place where maybe you don't love how you look in the mirror and that's okay because it doesn't have any power over you. It can't ruin your mood. It's not connected to your self-worth. You don't believe that your worthiness for love is dependent on it. You know, so it's just like a thing that might annoy you and that's good enough. Yeah, that's a helpful reframe. Yeah. I wanted to come back to the idea of compliments in terms of promoting a more body neutral climate. And you talk about in the book how, you know, even a compliment, whether it be positive or negative, can still have this kind of adverse effect of feeling like, well, you even just talked about it now. Now I have to hold on to that thing. Okay, let's say it's a positive. Now I can't let myself slip below this bar. Yeah. So how do we talk? How do we, whether it's as to say I want to give someone a compliment or someone wants to give a compliment to me, how do we rethink our language with our families, friends, and our colleagues around? I don't know, compliments, I guess. I have a lot to say about compliments. So I love this question. First and foremost, I would say that the issue isn't innately that complimenting a person's appearance is bad, right? Like that in a world where a person's value, their deep humanity and value is being equally respected across all platforms, equally celebrated across all platforms, and we didn't have systems of oppression like dividing things, that would probably be fine right? Because it wouldn't necessarily be able to cause the harm it causes. Mm -hmm. The issue is that we don't have those things in place. And so what tends to happen is a person's humanity is being disrespected or ignored or erased or, you know, shamed or whatever in some kind of way. So imagine a little girl who's like being praised for a couple of very specific things, being really nice and polite and sweet and feminine and being a caretaker and most importantly, being pretty or cute if she's little, and then as she grows up, hot and thin. Like that's where she's going to get most of her praise from because that's just where our mindset is in this culture. Whereas that girl's not probably going to get many compliments or attention or celebration for so many other awesome aspects of who she is. And so it just ends up totally imbalanced. And granted, there's something so... (laughs) There's like a knee-jerk reaction to comment on someone's appearance, especially when you first see them, because it's like the thing that's right in front of you, you know, like, oh my God, you look great. You changed your hair. Like, of course we want to say those things. It's the most notable thing before you sit down and talk to someone. So it's totally understandable that we want to do that. It's just an issue of recognizing that this imbalance is causing harm and then challenging it. What would you talk about if you gave yourself a ban on making comments on a person's appearance? And a lot of times that forces you to get a little more creative about what you appreciate about the person. And even a little bit more vulnerable and honest when you know you see someone you say, oh my God, you look great. Sometimes what you really meant to say is like, I'm so happy to see you. Mm-hmm. You know, the truer, deeper thing can kind of get like ignored when we start going, you look so pretty. And the truer, deeper thing actually has a bigger impact on that relationship to say, I've missed you. I'm so happy you're here versus you look so pretty. Because you kind of can't argue with the one that's like, I'm so happy you're here and I've missed you. The person can't immediately be like, I bet you're lying. I mean, I guess they can, but not nearly the same way you can when it's like, you look pretty, which is an assessment. It's saying, I've looked at you and judged you and decided on a hierarchy in my own mind that between bad and good, you look good. And now I'm telling you about it. You passed my test. So it kind of reinforces this weird idea that people are constantly judging you, even when it's a compliment. But then if you were to say the thing that's truer and deeper, more vulnerable, or not an assessment, but impact, which is a thing I'm really passionate about in compliments is sharing impact rather than assessment. You share the impact they have on you. Like, it makes me so happy to see you. 
And that is going to land in a deeper way because they can't just brush it off and say, I disagree with your assessment because it's your feeling, your experience. And then also it brings people to a place of feeling valued and seen much more deeply than constantly hearing that they look good. Yeah, that's such a great idea. I can't wait to practice this. (laughs) (laughs) And let me tell you, it's really difficult too. I mean, when I first decided, okay, no more comments on people's appearance. I'm just going to stop it completely, break the habit. I still, I mean, this is years later. I still occasionally have the urge to do it. Like, And sometimes I let myself and I just kind of move on. And other times I like catch myself and I'm like, oh, I really almost, you know, especially with like my little niece and nephew, you know, I just want to be like, oh my God, look at you, you're adorable. But I have to be like, oh you know, like, let me see if I can just pause that for a moment and say the thing I really want to say, which is like, I'm so happy we get to spend time together today. Or it makes me happy that you're at my house, like whatever the thing is, that's like, actually going to be meaningful to them. And not just yeah, like, it's a lot deeper when you share impact. Yeah. So my partner and I kind of go back and forth on we've been my whole thing for the past few years has been like he has a hard time accepting a compliment, maybe for this reason, right? There might be Mm -hmm. some sort of like intrinsic body, maybe not intrinsic, but internal body shaming, body dysmorphia from who knows where childhood culture, whatever. Mm -hmm. And so if I give him a compliment, I've been saying, can you practice just saying thank you instead of you know, shutting it down. Mm -hmm. But I think this is such a more helpful way to have it really land and have it instead of him kind of like putting his hand up in front of me and being like, nope, I'm not going to take that compliment that he could actually hold it and maybe feel it. Yeah. I'll sometimes say to my, I mean, I feel like in partnership because there is that element of desire it's different, right? So everybody gets to decide what works for them. But I will often say things like, I love your face instead of like, you look hot. Because again, what I'm sharing is I'm looking at my partner's face right now and it's so perfect. And, you know, it's got like a halo around it because I'm feeling really close to them and it's like so delicious. That's what's happening. And to turn that into something that's an assessment of like, you look hot. Oh, I think it loses something. So I will sometimes also just say you look hot, but that's because we have a dynamic where that's, you know, been talked about and welcome. And I think for a lot of women, especially, you kind of got to like unpack it for yourself before you decide what you want to hear. But it can be meaningful just to have your partner diversify even like a lot of uh, male partners will be like, you look nice, you know, or you look good. And that can just be nothing to the person who's struggling with body image. They're like, that is a nothing statement. I don't feel closer. I don't feel more confident. Whereas to hear, I love seeing you in this dress or like you are turning me on right now. These are just things that you're like, oh, I can receive that a little better. Yeah. Yeah. The receiving of it is the, is the part I'm trying to get to. And I appreciate that so much. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) I wanted to talk about the body image avatars that you use in the book. Well, first of all, can you Mm -hmm. explain to listeners what they are and also how can we learn from them? Yeah. So I have created a system that involves four of what I call the body image avatars. And each avatar is a sort of uh, personified caricature, if you will, that represents one major root cause, like a big umbrella category for where your body image issues might be coming from. They came directly from my client work because I was realizing that when you really get down to it, pretty much everybody falls into one of these four categories or more than one of the four categories for 
the deeper thing that is giving their body so much power, basically. Because like I said, you can be body neutral and still not particularly like how you look, as long as it doesn't have the power to cause you distress, suffering, obsession, like it can just be a thing that you're like, oh, that's not my favorite way to look, but whatever, move on with your day and it doesn't have an impact. So each of these four avatars represents sort of reason why it's having that big of an impact. And my first reason for creating them was just so that people could see how normal they are because body image stuff is so like shamey and private. A lot of times people say, you're the only person in my whole life who knows I struggle with this and nobody would ever guess. Or if anyone ever heard me talk about this, they would be shocked. So you don't know who's dealing with what. And I get this like behind the scenes look into people because of my job. And so I was like, okay, I'm noticing some pretty major patterns here for what is driving the struggle. And each of the avatars is one so that you can basically, I mean, in my book, I talk about it a lot. So you can like read about them and go, oh, like that's me. And then immediately feel more compassion for the fact that you're struggling because now you're not like alone on an island feeling like a crazy person because you can't overcome this thing. You're like, oh, I make sense. Because you do make sense. All of these things, all body image issues do make sense. You just have to, you have to be able to see what's underneath them in order for them to make sense. So fundamentally, that's why I created them. And uh, yeah, I can go through the four if you want. I don't know. I would love that. That would be helpful. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, please. Okay. So the first one, I mean, in no particular order, but uh, because I myself was this first one, it's always the first one that comes to mind, is the self-objectifier. So this would be someone who basically connects their self-worth and identity and their ability to get all their needs met in the world and everything they want in life with being attractive. This is very much what we were talking about with the aging thing. And of course, most people who are self-objectifiers are also people who have been objectified in our society, which means a lot a lot of women are going to be self-objectifiers more so than men. And then a lot of gay men are going to be self-objectifiers compared to straight men. So it's like, who are we objectifying? Those people are just more likely to sort of fall victim to this idea. And then again, based on what kind of attention they got and for what throughout their lives, personal experience plays a big role. But essentially, the self-objectifier is trying to use their body or appearance to get everything they want. Like they imagine attractiveness and being desirable to others is the key to everything I want. Happiness, love, security, everything. And so again, if we think about like how this stuff is so not superficial at all, you can kind of see in this case that a person would feel like if I'm not attractive or if I'm losing my attractiveness, according to conventional ideals, like my life is over. I mean, it really, really feels dire. And the next one is the high achiever. The high achiever has connected their self-worth with their ability to maintain like a certain high status, achievement-driven way of being in the world. Usually very much connected to discipline, hard work, willpower, that kind of thing. So it's a lot of the like patriarchal things that we value. They might not care if they look attractive or beautiful, but they're going to care a lot if you look at them and can tell that they work out, you know, or, or you can look at them and say, oh, they must have a lot of willpower. Like that's usually what they're using their body to convey is both to gain the high status and social privilege associated with thin bodies or fit bodies, but also so that everybody can see I'm a hard worker, which means I'm valuable. And there is that connection there that does the same exact thing as for the self-objectifier with attractiveness. 
So it's like if I gain weight and everybody can see that I'm no longer in control of my life, I don't have the discipline anymore. Now I'm a failure. I'm nothing like it's still just as dire. But these are usually people who in childhood were praised for being like the best at things, mm -hmm. you know, being a top of everything, almost taught like there's no point in doing something if you can't be the best at it. So that's the next one. Then we've got the outsider who is focused usually on fitting in. So the outsider might not feel any desire to be top of anything, right? They might not want to be the most attractive or the thinnest or anything like that because they don't particularly want to stand out mm -hmm. the way the first two do often. They want to blend in. So there's a lot of visibility stuff going on with the outsider because they're using their body to kind of earn them a sense of belonging and connection in wherever they are, society at large or a particular community. But... Unfortunately, the sort of deeper plan there, which is totally subconscious, is, I mean, what's the point of fitting in unless you actually get to feel a sense of belonging, right? Mm -hmm. So they're usually seeking that deeper sense of belonging, but they're never going to get it this way. So unfortunately, their plan is almost like to fit in so much that then they're allowed to stand out for being themselves, which is really not how things work. So it's a constantly failing plan, very frustrating one. They will often describe like the pain they feel around body image as being like uh, focused on being rejected, being humiliated, being judged, being criticized. Like it's it's a lot of like interpersonal stuff because that's what they're looking for is positive, strong connections and a feeling of belonging. And then the last one is the runner. And the runner is the hardest to identify. Most people will not immediately identify themselves in the runner. Although a lot of times what happens is as I work with someone who identified with one of the other avatars, the runner will kind of creep up during our work together and they'll start to be like, oh, I see what's going on here. So the runner is basically using their body and in particular their body-based, like body image-based behaviors, meaning dieting, binging, exercising, avoiding exercise, like there can be any number of these things that they might do related to body image stuff that keeps them numb, that keeps them busy, that keeps them distracted, anything that allows them to avoid themselves because they are running from something inside themselves. And these people will most often tell me that they feel a constant anxiety. They lack self-trust. They lack a connection to their sort of inner guidance system, their intuition, their inner wisdom and knowing. And so it's kind of like, if you don't trust yourself to feel your feelings or face whatever truth you've got in there, you don't really have a choice but to run. And body image issues offer you a million ways to do that. It's just an incredibly convenient way to solve that problem. If you don't want to be present with yourself, whew. Take up dieting and overexercising, man. It is effective, right? Like it will keep you busy. You can think about it 24-7. You never need to notice what you're feeling. So in that way, all four avatars point toward a direction for where you would want to start looking in the body neutrality work. Like it doesn't perfectly describe each individual. Each individual is going to have a lot more nuance, a lot more specifics, but it tells you like, flag here, <laughs> come look over here, you know? Yeah. We, you're you're kind of answering the next question I was going to ask you, which is about symptom versus root cause and how do we get to root cause? And, you know, it sounds like maybe one of the ways we can approach root cause getting beyond the symptom is to maybe identify with a, an avatar or more than one avatar. So I guess what I'm wondering is, is like, let's say we identify with the runner 
then what is our next step? Okay, I am acknowledging that yeah. I'm numbing. I'm acknowledging that it's hard for me to be still. I'm acknowledging that being still in my body does not feel like a safe place. What's our next step? Like, for example, if somebody came to you and you were working with them in this way, what would you have them do next? Yeah. Can I ask, are you identifying with the runner? I identify with all of them in all some of them. Yeah, yeah. way. And the runner is very true. I think mm. probably most in my life right now, I definitely over time, I could have said, oh, just, you know, yeah. different ones, but I'm training for a marathon. And so I'm busy. <laughs> mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, and okay. maybe this is why. <laughs> yeah. So in my book, I lay out the whole thing is called the body neutrality blueprint. So it starts with the avatars and then it takes you through the steps basically for what you would need to do. It's not like a quick and easy set of steps, but it is a breakdown of the work that I would do with a client. And essentially the next step is to get really specific and personal about how your particular body image issues are protecting you or helping, or at least trying to protect you or help you. So let's say you identified with the runner. I would start asking questions to help you figure out what you might be running from specifically. Because most people, when you start with the avatar, you're in a pretty general category. You know, you might be like, I just feel like being attractive is what gives me worth. And that can be true, but that doesn't like hit some visceral deep thing inside you necessarily. Whereas if we get much more personal and nuanced and understand like how it's functioning for you, especially when it's functioning for you, Like if you start paying attention to the pattern of when do you have a good body image day and when do you have a bad body image day, like what's setting it off? Mm -hmm. That gives us a ton of information about how it's literally functioning for you and what it's protecting you from, or at least trying to. So that would be the next step is trying to figure that out on a much more personal level. And then from there, you just do whatever. I mean, from there, the work can look like anything because it depends on what what you're dealing with. So the next bit of work from there is just facing whatever it is or moving through. Like, so for example, if you say, I think that my body is the only way that I can get my needs for love, respect, attention, and approval met. At a certain point in the process, we would be looking at finding other ways for you to get those needs met Mm -hmm. so that you can have that visceral feeling. Because all of this work, people think of it as very intellectual, but it's not. If it was, I would just tell all my clients they're fine and I wouldn't have a job. You know, it would be great, but like it doesn't work. That's why nobody can convince you that like you're fine when you're struggling with this stuff because it's not intellectual. It's deep. It's emotional. It lives in our bones in some ways. So trying to figure out, hmm, I've noticed that I I am most likely to obsess over food and exercise under these circumstances, like when I'm feeling vulnerable, when I'm feeling sad, when I'm dealing with this part of my life rather than that part, like that starts to be like, oh, I see my body image issues are protecting me from that. And that sets your direction for, okay, well, what would I need to no longer, for my body image issues, not to have a job anymore, basically. Because they're just trying to help, you know, like how do we make them no longer need to exist? That's the rest of the blueprint, basically. Yeah. I have this question that's kind of percolating and I'm it's not quite formed yet. So I'm going to sort of try to just let it vomit out. Perfect. <laughs> and it's around diet and nutrition culture as it relates to body image, because it's, you know, six half dozen or the other, whether we're hyper-focused on working out as a means to quote unquote, perfect our bodies Or maybe it means that in the kitchen, we're hyper obsessive and hyper aware of what we're putting in our mouth. And so I'm wondering if you 
in your work, and I know you, you know, you've been a personal trainer for, for many years. And I'm wondering how you approach, I think it's around like, how is nutrition important or unimportant or neutral in terms of when you're working with clients, what kind of importance does food have in this work? So that is such a great question because I think the way we talk about food in our culture and how important it is to be healthy and everything, that kind of stuff is like, I never want to go around and say it's not true, right? Like nutrition science is actually super freaking interesting and I could geek out about it all day. But I can also recognize that whether or not you're eating a certain number of antioxidants is probably not going to be a particularly big factor in your overall health and well-being compared to something like how close are you to your friends? You know, like how authentic do you feel you're able to be with the people that you love? Like there are major, major things that are so much more important to our health and well-being. Health is a combination of physical health and mental health, right? So like to me, I just think nutrition gets over glamorized as a a thing that's so important. And it comes from diet culture. So it's like, it makes sense that people would obsess over those things because we have this diet culture saying, you know, you have to eat less and healthier and cleanse everything and, you know, whatever. Because again, your body is the most important thing about you. Being thin, being fit, these are the most important things in the world. And I just don't agree with that. So I think everyone kind of gets to decide where they want that information to play a role. But most of the people that I work with have to go through a pretty major healing phase where they step back from that stuff. If they've been obsessing, you know, Mm -hmm. you step back from it and go, it might actually be healthier for me to eat junk food and never think about nutrition again for like the next year while I learn that I am worthy of love no matter what I put in my body, no matter how I move my body, no matter what my body looks like. And there may come a time, a lot of times I would say, as you start listening to your body and connecting with your body better, most people don't ultimately want to eat junk food all the time. So like when you're really tuned in and embodied, that stuff kind of takes care of itself, which is the idea of like intuitive eating. It's not going to take care of itself to the level of like healthism, obsessive nutrition science, of course, because we don't automatically walk around being like, I need this many vitamins and minerals and macronutrients. But we do have a pretty good system. And if you're able to listen to it, you'll eat pretty balanced. So it's one of those things where depending on where a person's relationship with food is, a lot of times putting nutrition on a back burner while they focus on overall health and well-being in so many bigger hitting ways is healthier. And like my little analogy for this that I always go to is if you are obsessive over food and you eat the most perfectly healthy things in the entire world, you're getting all of the things that you should get and you are also very stressed and obsessed about it all the time and you feel like panicky if you miss something or whatever, the stress impact on your body is going to mean that ultimately this diet is not healthy for you, Yeah. right? So like, why not try another thing? Maybe you reintroduce some of those principles later, but why not try another thing? Because the stress impact is huge. The research backs this up. So it's not actually healthy to eat a salad if you're sitting there eating the salad feeling like an unworthy piece of crap being like, I hate myself because all I want is this burger or something. And oh my God. And you're like in your head the whole time. Was it really a healthy choice? Like maybe not. So I think that's just basically where I stand on it is everyone's relationship to it is going to be different. A lot of people need healing in that space though. And the same with exercise, like you may need to take some time away from exercise, which seems like it would be physically unhealthy, quote unquote, 
to anybody who is prioritizing like the fit life. But again, it's in service of an overall balanced, healthy life. On the other side, maybe you do move again, but this time you do it from a place of feeling good enough instead of feeling shame and insecurity. And like, if I don't do this, I'm a bad person. I wanted to hear more about your own revolution in this process intellectually and then from an embodied place because you were you're a former is it is it a correct term bodybuilder or you were in body competitions no I never did competitions I was a personal trainer though okay yeah so you want to hear about which aspect here like the mind shift from if there was oh. one if there was let's say aha moment or if it was yeah. a gradual shift from thinking about okay this person's coming to me or maybe yeah. the way that I'm training is to look fit, to be fit, to stand on the scale and have a certain number show up to let's look at health holistically. Let's understand what it actually means yeah. to be in my body and be okay with that. Whether I look in the mirror and I say, I love it, or I look in the yeah. mirror and I'm like annoyed, but I can still live with it and I'm not super attached to it. So a more healthy approach to body image. Well, I would say that transition was slow and painful because I was very attached to, as a personal trainer, I had all these like certifications and information. I was really good at what I did. And I always tried to focus on empowerment rather than weight loss or appearance. But obviously people in New York City anyway, I was like a boutique gym. Like people would come to me for weight loss and appearance. So... I had a lot of information about how to change the way you look. And all of it was sort of based in like, this is what we know to be, like this is evidence-based, this is what we know to be effective. But what it did not do is take into account a person's humanity, quality of life, any of those things. So the minute that someone went off the plan, usually they went kind of back to what they were doing before and they went and gained the weight back, or they lost the routine. And so I found that really frustrating. But once I started getting sort of nudged by the different people in my life, different people in my audience, to read about like the the science of weight loss and dieting, the actual long-term impact, meaning like really understanding how it's true that over 95% of people who lose weight on a diet are going to not be able to sustain that for more than two years. It was almost like in my head, I think I was so proud of having all the right answers. And then I learned that all the right answers weren't right. And it was just ego death. It was horrible. It was devastating. I felt so resistant. Like this is why sometimes when people are like, I mean, I know you think this stuff, but like, I don't think, you know, whatever. If I get some pushback, I'm like, yo, you are allowed to give pushback. I gave the most pushback you could ever imagine. I would like read a book about it And then I would play devil's advocate with everybody that I could so that until I like really understood, you know, I would be like really almost fighting for, I think for a while anyway, fighting for the kind of high ground. I was like, yeah, but if you just do it as a lifestyle change, isn't that different? And then it's like, (laughs) well, actually, here's some more research. Well, actually, you know, like I didn't want it to be true. I hated losing this feeling of like, I've got all the answers. But ultimately, I read enough. I mean, I I just consumed so much during that period of time, like health at every size, intuitive eating, all of these things that were really laying it out there and showing like (laughs) study by study, pointing out the flaws in the research for stuff that backs diet culture. And it just started to click. And I was like, all right, well, I don't want to do harm. 
And I'm currently in a position of unfortunately kind of doing harm just by continuing to work with people to lose weight or whatever. And so I left the fitness industry and I started doing what I'm, you know, I started doing coaching the way I do it now. But it was, it was hard. I think it's, it's like the rug gets ripped out from underneath your entire reality. It is really difficult and disorienting to take in that stuff and realize that you've been wrong about something that our entire culture is so sure that it's right about. Yeah. Yeah. Especially as it pertains to diet theory and all the different, oh, this diet was going to give you this result. And yeah. oh man, what a yep. head spin that is. Totally. Uh, and starting to be like, oh, they're all kind of the same. And literally the long-term results for them all are a catastrophic failure. And doctors are even still recommending this. Like what a doctor would never be like, hey, you have cancer and there's this treatment that has like a two to 4% chance of working and you should do it before we take any other steps. Like it's also, it's going to make you worse for like half of people who start it, <laughs> like are going to exacerbate the symptoms. So go ahead and do that. Like it just doesn't make sense. And once you realize it doesn't make sense, it all kind of falls apart. You can't go back. Once you see it, you can't unsee it. Yeah, that's true. I feel that often. I So I'm also a health coach and I grapple with this on the daily when I'm talking to clients about, because the, there's, the question is always, well, what should I be eating? I want recipes. I want yeah. a script that I can look at and follow mm-hmm. and get an outcome. And it's always like, <laughs> there isn't that. That doesn't yeah. exist, to, not right. in any sort of long-term sustainable way. Correct. Uh, so it's a heartbreaker for for many people, I identify with that. It is. But even if you think about that, it's like we have all been taught not to trust ourselves or our bodies or our needs or our urges. Like we've been taught to ignore all of that completely and follow this external thing, whether it's a nutritionist or a magazine article or like a celebrity, like we're told, ignore your own hunger cues, fullness cues, your own cravings, shut all that down completely and do this thing that someone else is telling you to do. So it's also really disempowering and it just doesn't make sense. And it is frustrating. It makes people feel horrible about themselves in the end. So learning to reconnect to yourself, your own needs and urges and cues and signals in your body. I mean, it's not what people want to hear when they're looking for a plan, but it is kind of the only way that works in the end. If you want to feel free in your own mind anyway. No, I agree with you. Yeah. <laughs> it's it's the I was going to say the cold hard truth, but I don't know if I frame <laughs> it that way either. Yeah. I want I want to be mindful of your time and I I'm curious if there's one key takeaway, it doesn't have to be one, if one floats up to the top. Yeah. Or two or three takeaways from either this conversation or the book that you hope people just really uh that sinks in. What would what would that be? Oh my gosh, easy. I want people to understand that their body image issues make sense because I believe that the moment you recognize, oh, this has been happening for a good valid reason. It makes sense that I've been struggling. It makes sense that I feel this way, that I think this way. It brings a level of compassion and acceptance and patience to the process that you need to do the next steps. Whereas a lot of times people come in and they're like, you know, day one, it's like, I don't even know why I'm struggling with this. I'm so stupid and I know better than this and I don't even know why. And it's like, they're beating themselves up for beating themselves up. And when you recognize that our brains don't do anything for no reason, 
Our brains and bodies are incredibly clever. They don't do stuff randomly. Like they're not going to cause you to struggle or suffer for no reason. You just haven't been taught to go understand what that reason is yet. And once you start to recognize, okay, well, if it's not for for no reason, then maybe it's not as out of control as I thought. Because that's a lot of times people feel like it just hits me out of nowhere. And I'm like, I bet it didn't really hit you out of nowhere. I bet you just didn't learn yet how to identify your triggers. Because nobody talks about body image that way. They talk about it like as if it were a character flaw, you know, like, oh, this is just one of my issues. And we sort of treat it like a weakness almost, like you don't have the strength to just decide differently. But they exist for a reason. They are trying to serve you in some way. They developed to try to protect you or help you or solve a problem or get a need met. And once you understand that, you can forgive you can let go. You can bring compassion into it. You can start to get curious, which is really what you need to do the rest of the work. And before that happens, it's a pretty tough sell, you know, because you're like, well, my body image issues have nothing to do with me. They just, you know, come in like blindside me out of nowhere sometimes. And they exist for no reason whatsoever. And they're proof that I'm stupid and weak and broken. Like that is not a conducive sort of environment inside yourself to go do the work of being like, oh, I wonder what might be going on. I wonder what might be setting me off. I wonder what beliefs I might hold about this that have led me to feel this way. So yeah, my biggest thing is like your body image issues are valid. They make sense. You make sense. Like nobody is broken who is struggling with this. It all makes total sense. We just haven't been taught how to think about them yet. Mm-hmm. And my, my hope is that the book helps people and the mainstream conversation as well so that we can start to talk about them and think about them that way. Yeah, it's so important. I really, I really love this body of work and I appreciate it. So that at the beginning, I'm saying it at the end and If you want more of this kind of conversation, I urge you to check out Jesse's podcast. This is not about your body. It's filled with all kinds of this great knowledge. And it's such an empowering, helpful conversation. These conversations are. Is there any other way that you like to connect with people other than Instagram? You know, how how do you want people to follow along with you? Yeah, I have a website, jessineelan.com. So if anybody wanted to apply for coaching, that's where you would do it. And then I just got a TikTok. So it's jessineeland on TikTok. And I also have a YouTube channel, just jessineeland. So you can find me there. Great. I like it when it's easy across the board like that. I know. (laughs) (laughs) Thanks. All right, Jesse, it's been such a pleasure. We really appreciate you sharing all this with us. Thank you so much for being on the show. Thank you for having me. It was great. Thank you so much for listening to the Radically Loved Podcast. Please remember to subscribe, rate, and review wherever you get your podcasts and follow us on Facebook at Radically Loved Rosie, on Instagram at Rosie Acosta, and Twitter at Rosie Acosta. By the way, this is original music by DJ Taz Rashid. You can follow DJ Taz on Spotify and check out the best music for yoga and meditation. This has been a Mod Pod Studio production. Check them out at www.modpodstudio.com. <laughs>